Campsite Media. It is just a eerie feeling when you pull up in that driveway. I'm almost just putting myself back in John John's shoes. So we have got to get down to the, you know, the bottom of this, the details. We don't know who it is yet, but that's just what they're saying. Asking for all cars and ambulance 33 traffic. And I'm just thinking about what could possibly be going through his mind at this time. All units be advised. We'll be down here. When you come over the big hill on the left, we'll back off. Three, five, four, three, one, Scott County is in East Tennessee, right up against the Kentucky border in the western foothills of the Appalachians. It's very pretty. It's all hills and streams, mostly rural, and it's way off the beaten path. It's also one of the poorest counties in Tennessee. And like a lot of poor rural places, there's a fairly significant amount of drugs. There's a lot of heroin and opioids these days, but 20 years ago, it was methamphetamine. In 2003, a man named Marty Carson was the drug officer for the Scott County Sheriff's Department. His partner was the canine officer, a sergeant named John John Yancey. His real name was Hubert, but everyone called him John John, except for Marty. He just called him John. Methamphetamine was so rampant in Scott County in 2003 that the sheriff sent Marty and John John to Kentucky for a week of special training in meth enforcement. A few weeks after they returned home to Tennessee, they found themselves outside a mobile home on a swervy two-lane road in the woods, just west of a little city called Oneida. It was a ratty little single-wide with wobbly porches on the front and back. The sun was already down that night, but there was a light at the top of a tall pole, like a street light that lit up the backyard and one side of the mobile home. Beyond that, it was just dark woods. John John and Marty had a tip that a guy was cooking meth inside and that he might be really dangerous, maybe even on the FBI's most wanted list. It was cold, 34 degrees, starting to snow. Marty and John John had two other deputies with them, covering the front of the building. John John, the canine officer, was in the yard talking to the guy who lived there. Marty, the drug officer, knocked on the back door. A woman answered and Marty went inside. A minute later, give or take, John John ran up the back steps, and he went inside. There was a bang. Marty ran out the back door, screaming for the other deputies to take cover and to call an ambulance, that there was a man inside with a shotgun, and that his partner was down. Those are just about the only facts that everyone agrees on. One officer down. This is a story that begins with a shooting in a meth lab. But it's a story, really, about perspective. About who saw what, and from what angle, and when. It's about what happens in the shadows, and the stories we tell to explain those things. And it's about which stories we choose to believe. 
From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is season two of Witnessed, Friendly Fire, episode one. I'm Sean Flynn. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Minutes after John John is shot, the back roads of Scott County are strobing with red and blue lights. When cops hear that phrase, officer down, they can't get there fast enough. It doesn't matter if they're from the same agency. It's part of the code. Law enforcement officers take care of each other. I know y'all are busy right now, but if you need any assistance at all, we're, we're here for you all. Okay. Uh, the sheriff rushes there as fast as he can. One of his deputies is down. There's a suspect with a shotgun on the loose. When he gets to the scene, he sits in a cruiser with Marty. All around them is controlled chaos. Everyone wants to know who did this and where they should be looking. No, sir, I don't. I, I don't know no more than that at this time. What kind of perimeter do we need to set up? Uh, the sheriff's on his way down there. I'm hoping Morgan County. Yeah. I just to let you know, we've got when Marty and John John first got to that mobile home, there were three people inside. A man and a woman were sleeping in the back bedroom with a batch of meth cooking on a hot plate in the room. The third person was Nikki Porter. She was 26 with blue eyes and dirty blonde hair, but she looked older, tired. She was asleep when the cops came. She's the one who opened the door when Marty knocked. She's the only one of the three who didn't run. She held John John's hand while he lay bleeding on the floor. Now Nikki's in the backseat of a cruiser with Detective Randy Llewellyn. My name is Randy Llewellyn with the County Sheriff's Department. I'm a detective. I'm not reading your rights and stuff because you're not under arrest. I'm just trying to find the information, okay? Conversation's being recorded. She's a mess, crying. It's hard for her to talk. A man just got shot in front of her. Randy is sitting next to her. He's wearing a ball cap and body armor. He lights a cigarette. He asks very basic questions. What happened? Who was in the trailer? Nikki tells him she lives there with her boyfriend, Ryan. Did Ryan shoot him? No. Did this support you understand? I'll shoot him shot. No. Listen, there's no room for no lies or nothing. You said you don't know about this. I told you not to drop. Listen, listen. Now, who shot him? Me in the bedroom. She says, the man in the bedroom. Who was the man in the bedroom? Honey, listen. I can't tell you with all this shit on. I can't. Truth is, she doesn't know. Randy's getting frustrated. I think I need to end this interview and read your rights and start all over. No. Well, this is your call. You're you just trying to scare me. No, I'm not. I'm dead serious, honey. If you want to talk to me, fine. Like I told you, I'm searching for information. Now, officer's been shot here, and I understand it's bad. Now, you want to talk to me or not? 
You want me to read Ruth? I don't know his name. Well, who? Is, is it your house? No. Is that where you live? Yeah. With your boyfriend? Yeah. Is it not safe for me to kind of think that you'd know who's in there? Nikki finally tells him the man in the back bedroom is named Mark. She doesn't know his last name, doesn't know him, and she definitely doesn't know anything about any guns in the house. Randy keeps asking questions for another four minutes. Nikki gives the same answers. Then Randy gets out of the cruiser and leaves Nikki sitting there. A little more than an hour later, Randy comes back. The radio is on a country station, and the wipers are keeping snow flurries off the windshield. Nikki's calmer now. Randy moves her to the front passenger seat. Did I give you a cigarette? No. Yeah. 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 Randy gives her a smoke and reads her her rights. She's not under arrest, but Randy wants to go by the book, make sure Nikki understands that she doesn't have to talk to him, and that she can get a lawyer if she wants one. Nikki agrees to talk. But I need you to tell me in your own words what occurred here this evening from the time that the officers arrived as best you can. Nikki tells him that Marty knocked on the door and she let him in. She told him no one else was inside, but Marty could tell there were people in the back bedroom. The light was leaking through a gap at the bottom of the door and Marty could see shadows, people moving. So he started yelling for them to come out. Then more officers came inside and John John got shot. There's not a lot of detail in her story. I'm asking you what... That's what happened. But you didn't tell me much. Well, not much happened, but a cop got shot. I mean, but how much more do you want to know? That's what I want to know. How were you many shots you heard? What he needs. My phone what says... What's going on here? Just Who was in the house? Everything is what I want to know. Everything to the smallest detail. Well, that's it. I'm trying to question you so we can figure out what happened. That's and what then, happened. But you're not, you may think you're telling me a lot, but I need That's details of anything that you heard said. He knows more about what's going on than I do. Who does? Marty. He was the one standing there. They were the ones standing there. When we're going to be talking to Marty. I don't know. All I know is I seen a man almost die in front of me. The questioning goes nowhere again. We'll end this recording and this interview with you not answering any questions. Is that the way you want it? Yes. Okay, we're in. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. I've had others over the years, but that's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, host of the new season of WBUR's Last Scene. I'm digging into what happened at Harvard Medical School, how body parts were stolen and sold across the country. In this five-part series, I spend time with those who buy and sell human remains. And I ask, how should we treat the dead? Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. In 2003, John John had been married to his high school sweetheart, Lori, for 13 years. They had three young sons. The oldest was seven. Lori was a nurse in the emergency room at the local hospital. But this day, the Friday after Thanksgiving, she's off. She'd taken the boys to Knoxville to look for a Christmas tree while John John was at work. On their way home, around 8, 8.15, she stops by her mom's house. There's a message that John John had called. And I tried to call him back, but it went to voicemail. When Lori was at home, she'd usually have a scanner running in the background, a receiver that picks up on chatter from all the emergency frequencies. We left it on pretty much all the time, even at night, especially if John John was working at night. I just felt like a little safety thing, you know, just want to be able to hear his voice, make sure, yeah, yeah, he's still talking, he's okay. A few minutes after she tries to call John John, Lori's brother calls the house. And said, do y'all have the scanner on? Are y'all listening to the scanner? And he said, an officer's been shot. And we didn't have the scanner on. And that's, I just, you know, got that sick feeling when they said an officer had been shot. She turns on the scanner. It's crackling with chatter. And at the sheriff's office, a dispatcher's fielding nonstop calls. We don't know who it is yet, but that's just what they're saying. Ask him for There were quite a bit of talk on the radio. Hi. Yeah. What's going on? Uh, yes, this is Gloria Paul from Georgia. Uh, we're going to report that an officer was shot in Scott County. Uh, I have no idea at this point, okay? Yeah, thank you. Could you tell me if that was Charles Jeffers that got shot, please? I'm just kind of listening, just a lot of background noise, and, you know, I kept waiting to hear John John's voice on there, and I wasn't hearing anything. Who's out there that's a supervisor that I can call and see if they need any extra help? Well, Chief Ted's here, and Marty's out there. I'm just afraid, and I'm afraid it's John John because we've not heard from him. Afraid it's John John? Yeah, I'm what I'm afraid of. We haven't heard him. Lori's trying not to panic. She calls the sheriff's department. Hey, this is Lori. Uh, that, that's not John John's truck, is it? We don't know which one it is, okay? Okay. Are they headed to the emergency room? Yes. Okay, thanks. All right. And then, on the scanner, Lori hears the medics in the ambulance calling into the ER, the same one where she works. They started, you know, giving details that they were bringing in a 35-year-old male. John John was 35 years old. They said they had a gunshot wound to the chest. Just don't bother me. CPR mark progress, so I knew it was him. Gunshot wound to the chest. CPR in progress. I knew that was not going to be good. So I called back to the ER, and they just said, Lori, you need to get up here. Back at the scene, another officer confirms that it is John John. Then Lori's brother calls in. I know you're not supposed to give us information out. Was that my brother-in-law got shot? Who's your brother-in-law? John John. Yeah. 
it was? Yeah, I think so. Is he okay? We don't know. They did transfer. We got there. There was... It was just unbelievable. There's police cars everywhere. The parking lot was full. I mean, there wasn't really a place to park. There's just people everywhere. So I just went on in. I don't even know. You know, I kind of just... I guess I just left my mom. I just went straight in. And... I knew which room, because we usually have a designated trauma room. So I just went straight to that room. I don't even know if anyone tried to stop me or not. I can't even remember if they'd caught in the surgery team. I mean, the OER staff, everybody was there. And everybody was working on him. I mean, it's just like I had to know they were doing everything that they could to save him. And I thought, I'm just going to stay in the corner all the way and let them keep doing what they're doing. Um... But I just stood there and prayed. But he'd been down for a while, and they had no rhythm. I mean, he wasn't breathing. But eventually, you know, they had to stop because they just got nothing to work with. It's just the saddest thing. Absolutely the saddest thing. I just kind of stayed in there with John. They let us, just me and him, be in there for a little bit. You know, they were going to have to send John for a an autopsy. They needed me to sign a paper for that, so they brought me out of the room. So I went back to our, our ICU waiting area. And then I think the next person I had seen was probably Robbie Carson. Robbie, yes. uh, they're needing you to go to ER. You had an officer shot. Had an officer shot? Yeah. Hey. Oh, well, you don't know. We didn't know they out or nothing. Robbie Carson was the chief detective in the sheriff's department at the time. He's not related to Marty in any meaningful way. They're fifth cousins or something. Carson is just a really common name in Scott County. I just really wanted to know what in the world had happened. And I think Robbie Carson had told me at that point, best I remember, that uh, someone had shot John John and there was a manhunt and they were out looking for him. There's a huge manhunt. Sheriff's deputies, local police, state troopers, they're all looking for a man with a shotgun suspected of killing John John Yancey. But a shotgun didn't make a whole lot of sense. A shotgun would have blown a giant hole through John John. If it hit him in the shoulder, which is where John John was hit, it probably would have torn his arm off. But he's got just a little hole, and on the x-rays, the doctors and detectives can see a solid, misshapen slug. They tell Lori that John John must have been hit by what's called a pumpkin ball. It's a single piece of lead instead of a cartridge full of pellets. They're mostly used for taking down big game. It's a stretch, but a pumpkin ball is the only way a shotgun would be remotely plausible. As far as Lori knew, John John was supposed to have had a routine shift that night. She knew he and Marty had been looking for someone who might be on the most wanted list, Odd as that sounds for Scott County, Tennessee. But he hadn't said much about it. Lori thought John John really just wanted to follow up on a totally separate arrest he'd made two days earlier, on Wednesday. John John was in a hurry to get back, because on that Wednesday night, I guess it was late, and he did not take his statement. Then there was Thanksgiving on Thursday. So that was his number one goal on that Friday. Instead, John John goes to a meth lab. Hours later, he's dead. And his widow, Lori is at the hospital waiting to see his partner, Marty. 
When she finds him, he's having his blood drawn so it can be screened for drugs and alcohol. It's mandatory in cases like this. Totally routine. It'll come back negative. I asked him what had happened, and that's when he told me that uh, a guy named Mark knew that they had been looking for on that 10 most wanted. That's who had shot John John, and that he had fled into the woods, and that there was a manhunt they had brought in dogs from Brushy Mountain. You know, everybody was out looking for him. It was, yeah, very clear Mark knew. That's who had shot him. Had you ever heard that name before? No. No. I didn't know him. I'm Mark New, and we're in my home in Whitley City, Kentucky. wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. For the record, Mark New had absolutely nothing to do with John John Yancey being killed. There was a guy named Mark in the mobile home that night, and he was cooking meth. But it wasn't this guy. If you're confused, well, so was he. He lives in Kentucky now just over the state line. But in 2003, he's living in Scott County on Williams Creek Road, the same road where John John was shot to death. Mark and his wife have a furniture store, and he sells cars on a lot that he owns. The day John John shot is Black Friday. And like a lot of people on Black Friday, Mark and his stepson go out shopping. We spent the biggest part of the day looking at motorcycles. Came home that evening and... uh, had a friend stop by, and he was a good buddy of mine. And we, while we were sitting there, me, him, my wife, and my stepson heard all these sirens. I mean, I'm talking like a bunch. And we was just, you know, it was like, wow, something bad's going on down through here, you know, a bad wreck or something. Meanwhile, Mark's brother Steve, who's living a few miles away in Kentucky, he starts hearing Mark's name, and then his name. I've been a commissioner at the fire department over there since, well, when this was going on. And uh, my scanner goes all the time. It came across a scanner that 
uh, he might have fled to his brother's house and then said, Steve knew that's what got me. I mean, that's when it occupied my mind. I got straight on the phone and called. I said, Mark, what's going on? And it was coming across saying that he had killed a deputy sheriff down there, had shot a deputy sheriff. Let's linger for a second in Steve's head. He's just heard through official police channels that his brother, who sells cars and furniture, is a desperado, a cop killer. He's on the run. It's run all over Scanner. You have shot a deputy sheriff down there. And he said, well, Lord, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, I'm here at the house. And I said, don't leave the house. You need to get this took care of. I was like, you know, you got to be kidding. I, I really didn't know what to think. And then I seen it's for real. You know, there wasn't nobody pranking me or nothing that they was being serious. Lord, I got so many calls. Mark, are you all right? Mark, what's going on? I'm talking run down like three phones, cordless phones and cell phones. Kill them out dead from getting that many calls and talking. So I absolutely started losing it. I mean, I was freaking out. Thought, what should I do? I mean, what do I do? And uh, I was scared to really do anything. And my wife and I decided that I'll just stay there till morning time, and then we'll try to get to the bottom of it. The absurd part is that Mark says no one came to his house. No sheriff's deputy, no police officer, no state trooper. No one knocked on Mark's door to see if he was home. I'm sitting just a mile or so from what happened and don't know nothing. They're going to houses, several houses they searched, supposedly looking for me. Thought I was hiding out on the run. Just killed an officer. I stayed hid in the in the bedroom. I wouldn't even come out of the house. Like I said, uh, I was looking any time for them to knock my door down and come in and kill me. In other words, they had to manhunt on me. And... Uh, but never came to my house. Never. Sometimes, you know, it feels like it was just still yesterday. You know, even though it's been several years, but it just, you know, things that you seem like, I don't know, it just seems like you're in a, a cloud and it's just really hard to comprehend. What did that happen? And I got three little kids that are, you know, three, five, and seven. How do you even tell them about their dad? It's just awful. I don't even know how, you know, broke down even to tell them that he's not going to be coming back. How old are you? Four. You're four? When will you be five? Well, when is your birthday? That's John John with a video camera on the last birthday he celebrated with their oldest boy. Can we open the can we open the present? Lori, can we like close and open his present? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Logan. Happy birthday to you. Blow him out, Logan. Oh. 
probably three o'clock in the morning, I came back to my house with the boys. And then, you know, we just tried to lay down. But of course, you know, you can't sleep. The next day, Saturday, is a blur. Of course it is. Lori's in shock, exhausted. None of this makes sense yet, or even seems real. Late in the day, three deputies from the sheriff's department come to Lori's house. Like at 6 or 7 o'clock that night, and had told me that uh, they'd got a preliminary report back that it was actually Marty Carson's gun that had shot John John. The bullet that killed her husband came out of Marty's gun. And that's how I actually had found that out. And that was after the autopsy report. I thought, you know, there's possible struggle. It's just accidentally went off. You know, and this terrible thing has happened. And, you know, I really, I felt bad for him. Lori, in that moment when she's drowning in her own grief, her heart breaks a little for Marty. She can't imagine a worse trauma for a deputy. Marty's lost his partner, the man who always had his back, who had his back in a meth lab where some maniac was waving a shotgun around, and they were both scared and everything took a bad turn. And then a gun went off, and it was Marty's gun. And the bullet hit his own partner. For him not to even have known at this point on Saturday night that he had shot him, that it was actually him. They said that... um The sheriff was so upset that he couldn't come tell me himself. The sheriff, Jim Carson, is especially upset about the whole ordeal, in large part because he also happens to be Marty's father. This season on Witnessed Friendly Fire. Okay, Mr. Carson, we're on the record. You were sworn yesterday, is that correct? Yes. You understand you're under oath today? Yes. Who's telling the truth? I thought they were friends, best friends. He said, you've got this all wrong. This whole scenario is just not making sense to me. Just my gut feeling. Piecing together versions of the same story. Why you? That's the million dollar question. A story that isn't about who did it. I did get tied up in this whole case because of what you know, happened that one night. It's about why. You could kind of cover up a little dope dealing. Are you asking me if I intentionally killed John Dunn? No, Is that your question? I'm asking you if you intended to pull the trigger. You're going to hear 1,500 stories of how it happened, how this took place, and will we ever know the truth? Probably not unless somebody comes forward. We can take a pretty good stab at it, though. Witness is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. Friendly Fire was reported and hosted by me, Sean Flynn. Lindsay Kilbride is the senior producer, and Callie Hitchcock is the associate producer. The story editor is Daniel Riley. The series was sound designed by Shani Aviram, with mixing by Ewen Leitremuen. This episode was fact-checked by Alex Yablon. The theme song is Bowie by Shook Twins. A special thanks to our operations team, Amanda Brown, 
Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. Campside Media's executive producers are Josh Dean, Vanessa Grigoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed Witnessed Friendly Fire, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts.